A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's get this underway and welcome to The Brian Hyde Show, where we revel in wrong think. Not because it's just a contrary thing to do, but because sometimes somebody has to stand up against the narrative. I suspect you are here because you value truth over, well, comfortable platitudes. So pull up a chair. Let's have some fun. Our show is brought to you in part today by our friends at Jeff Staples Mortgage. Jeff is with ERA Brokers Consolidated. He uh, operates out of St. George, but if you're listening to me within anywhere within the state of Utah, and if you are in the market to either sell your home or you're looking to buy a home, I want you to talk to Jeff Staples. You can go to my uh, show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I have a link to Jeff's page where you can get all of the contact info, his phone number, and so forth. Just uh, trust me, the guy is phenomenal. He does a great job. He is with a very solid organization, and the real estate market's hot. I'm seriously tempted to have him on one day to talk about what is going on, because uh, on fire doesn't begin to cover what's happening in the market at this moment. Hey, speaking of on fire... Nice segue, right? Did you catch some of the footage of rioters across the nation breaking windows, looting and burning and beating and threatening innocent people? Ostensibly, this was over a decision that was handed down or actually a decision that was made. It wasn't actually a court you know, ruling, but uh, the decision was made in Louisville, Kentucky, not to charge all of the three officers who had originally uh, potentially faced charges in the death of uh, an EMT by the name of Breonna Taylor. Now, it's funny because the, obviously there's a lot of polarization and, and and I've seen some of the predictable, you know, taking sides, think that, well, you know, she was in a house with a drug dealer and they knocked, the police knocked and gave them plenty of chances. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about her death. She was not a combatant. She was not wanted. She was not the person on the warrant. But she still ended up dead. And you can try to spin it as you want that, well, if she had just complied and if they had just done this right or that right, you know, it wouldn't be a problem. But uh, the bottom line is it was the war on drugs. I'm sorry, the war on some drugs. That's why police went into that house. And that's what set a deadly series of events into motion. Now, they could have taken these officers out who were facing charges and they probably could have executed them on the steps of the courthouse. And folks in Louisville and various other cities across the nation still would have rioted. Why? Well, because they have a grievance and there's any excuse whatsoever, as we've seen in the last few weeks, any excuse is a reason to go out there and start destroying other people's property and beating innocent people on the streets and chanting and denouncing the police and taunting them. And there was plenty of that going on, but I share this with you because if you've seen that uh, footage of the rioters doing their thing all across the nation, you will be glad to know that in Moscow, Idaho, police have arrested three people for failing to social distance as they sang hymns in a church parking lot. Oh, I wish I was kidding. There was a candidate for Lataw County Commissioner by the name of... Uh, What's his name? Wrench. 
I don't know his last name. Anyway, he he was arrested and then a husband and wife team also arrested as they sat out in the parking lot, stood out in the parking lot, rather, singing. And I'm looking at the, the group of people out there. It's a it's a good sized group of people. There are dozens, possibly hundreds of people standing out there singing hymns. But because uh, three of these individuals apparently did not social distance to the uh, to the extent that the officers who were attending this thing uh, told them to on went the cuffs and they took them away. Now, I did say this is in Moscow, Idaho, not Moscow, Russia, because this is more in keeping with what you would have expected during the heyday of the Soviet Union. Oh, and and to top it off, another friend sent me uh, some video footage of a woman being tased and then arrested at her son's eighth grade football game, sitting completely social distanced in the bleachers, but she wasn't wearing a mask. And I believe some Karen sitting there near her was the one who summoned the authorities to come and use the only language that uh, Karens and Kyles speak, and that is force. We must force people to do what is right. Yeah, if I sound a little frustrated, it's because I am. Can I just ask you to step back for just a moment? Try to, to resist the urge and say, well, if these people had just complied or if they'd have just done what the police were telling them, none of this would be a problem. Take one step further back, take, take a deep breath and ask yourself, why in the hell are the police involved in something like this in the first place? Where is the danger? And I'm not being sarcastic when I say you literally have people out there breaking things, burning things, stealing things, victimizing people. And this is what police are doing. Look, it's sickening to me to see what the rioters are doing, to hear the kind of things, the, the filth that just pours out of their mouths like a busted sewer pipe constantly. They have one form of punctua- punctuation, and it begins with the letter F. Everything they say is punctuated with it. And yet the police, who I, I have some sympathy for when I see them being taunted and being all thrown under the bus like this, when you have police officers who would go out there and arrest people, well, you were sitting too close or standing too close. You weren't wearing a mask. I'm sorry, guys, but you you wonder why people hate you. You wonder why the day will come, the crowd will tear you to pieces. You can say, well, I'm just doing my job. If your job requires you to do unreasonable, immoral things, maybe you should reconsider. Or at least use that precious officer discretion to distinguish between what is correct and what isn't in terms of when you should get involved. And don't tell me it can't be done. Well, you have policies we have to follow. Maybe you do have administrators that that will lean on you if you don't. Maybe it's time to find a job in the productive sector of society. Maybe. Hmm? But I also know plenty of peace officers who exercise that discretion who don't go out of their way to make an arrest. They don't get their ego involved and and turn it into an arrestable situation. And people standing in the parking lot singing hymns is not a threat to public safety. I don't care what the words on paper are that your mayor may have signed. A mom sitting properly distanced from anybody else, no one around her had any reason to fear. But because she's sitting there without a mask... 
That's not the reason to go escalate and use force and frog walk her away from everybody after tasing her. This is why people hate cops. And unfortunately, the good cops get thrown under the bus because of the actions of bad cops. I mean, look, when the balloon goes up, my guess is most of the the police officers who are just doing their jobs are going to shed that uniform as fast as they can and try to blend into the crowd. And and the true believers who stay on the job are going to be asking, why am I getting shot at from both sides? Words on paper are not the same thing as right and wrong. And that is a concept that unfortunately we have lost our grasp of. Is it legal? Is it illegal? That's the only thing that seems to matter. And that means that good people in law enforcement are going to find themselves in harm's way because there are other people in law enforcement who lean on that enforcement part. Heel clickers. Well, says I have to do this. I'm just doing my job. How did it make society safer? I mean, when government wants to virtue signal, it uses force. The rest of us have to hold up signs or chant or something like that. Government uses force. And that's all those cops were doing. The ones who arrested the worshipers out there in the church parking lot, the officer who arrested this woman at her son's football game, They were simply virtue signaling on behalf of their masters, which, by the way, is the state and not the people they're ostensibly supposed to be serving. I'm posting a link in the show notes. I would encourage you to take a look at it. And especially the the, the churchgoers, the three people arrested there in Moscow, Idaho. It's crazy. I, I can't imagine, you know, that anybody could look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, they totally brought that on themselves. They were peacefully standing there. They didn't didn't even resist. They didn't lip off. They weren't throwing stuff or spitting or, you know, hurling invectives at them. I don't know. Maybe they'd have been better off to be rioters. But they weren't. And that's the point. Watch the videos. Go to the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out for yourself. I'm not going to say you're going to be pleasantly surprised, but I think you'll be somewhat surprised to see what it takes to end up in handcuffs today. All right, we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like I, I feel a little better after getting that rant off my chest. It just irks me. And it probably irks me a little bit more because of what I have seen uh, play out here in uh, in the county where I live, where they just passed a mask mandate. And, and can I shed some light on how that came about Because I want to make it clear, this is not something that, oh, well, it was undertaken with the most serious discussion. And after uh, we took it to the public and we, you know, got comments on it, we made sure that we were doing exactly what uh, was right by the people. I noticed that uh, if, if you want to know, how did Utah County suddenly get a mask mandate? 
This is from someone who works in the Utah County Commission office for Commissioner Bill Lee, who I will say is the only county commissioner in Utah County, or at least he's, he's one of the three. He's the one who is opposed to a countywide mask mandate. There was no meeting held to approve this mandate, which was opposed just a couple of days ago. I think yesterday was actually the first day. Interestingly, this person says his name is Brian Volks. He says, we did have a commission meeting scheduled for yesterday at 3 p.m. And he says the public would have had a chance to attend that meeting. However, Commissioner Tanner Ainge wanted that meeting canceled because he said his staff had mistakenly, his word, mistakenly placed a mask mandate on the agenda. And he didn't want the public to mistakenly think that a mask mandate would be discussed. But because he caught the error, again in quotation marks, um, just uh, less than 24 hours before the meeting, there was no way by state law to alter that agenda. So the solution that he came up with, well, we have to cancel the meeting. And so they did. Well, it appears the accidental agenda item was, in fact, a big red herring. Because last night, I think this is actually night before last, Nathan Ivey and Tanner Ainge went ahead and imposed a countywide mask mandate anyway through what's called the ratification process, which allows the commission to take action outside of an official commission meeting. Now, this worker says, typically, we only use the ratification process for routine items that are not controversial and that cannot wait for approval until the next regularly scheduled commission meeting. Taking action through the ratification process requires written approval from at least two of the three commissioners. Tanner Ainge gave his written approval on Monday after or around Tuesday afternoon, and Nathan Ivey gave his written approval at 7.50 that evening. Again, Bill Lee remains opposed to a countywide mask mandate, but that's how it happens, folks. It cannot stand up in the light of day. It cannot stand up to public scrutiny. So they push it through. And the danger here is this kind of stuff being pushed through is what will lead to police officers taking you down, putting you in handcuffs, and taking you away to jail if you fail to follow this dictate. Now, it's going to vary from place to place. And to his credit, uh, I believe uh, Utah County Sheriff Mike Smith said, I am not going to enforce mask mandates. But there are a lot of other petty authoritarians out there who will, not just police. There are a lot of Karens out there who are not ashamed in the least. They were doing it before there was anything official on paper. And this only emboldens them. In their quest to go out and shame and confront and, and try to, to sick the state on people who aren't doing what they want them to do. They have no proof that a person is causing harm. No proof that a person is sick. No proof that they're an asymptomatic carrier of COVID. No proof whatsoever other than you're not doing what I want. And someone in authority agrees with me. So I'm going to do what I can to bend you to my will. That's evil as well as childish. So life got a little bit more difficult for a lot of us here in the last few days. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, the burden, we're all victims. I mean, you have some tough choices to make. I've been having this discussion with my son. You know, we've, we've been very good about going to the grocery store, not wearing the mask, not confronting people about it, just going about our business, smiling at the people that we see. 
which apparently may be construed as some form of attack now. I could see his face. It was awful. <laughs> but now, now we've got to make choices. And for my son, that's a pretty hard thing. I mean, he's, he's a 19, almost 20-year-old young man. And he wants to be true to what he believes or what he knows is right. But that social pressure is being ramped up and it's making it much more difficult. I'm pretty sure he's using uh, whatever the uh, whatever the curbside shopping or a door dash or whatever to, to start bringing him some of his groceries. And he goes through a lot of groceries. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. Hello, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. You know, I think we need to get the the real test for the masks out there somehow, because I think there's a lot of people that actually believe that if anybody's outside without a mask, then they're they're in that they will kill other people. People. That's how it's being sold. Yes. Yeah, I I think that, you know, if you don't have a mask, you're either killing people or or you're putting yourself out there to be killed. You know, that that the mask is the only thing that's going to protect you from being killed. You're going to die. People are going to die. That's the only thing I can think people don't realize, that the masks do nothing. It's weird, Brian. It's just weird. Well, they make some people feel safer. And, and I'm okay if somebody wants to feel safe, but that in no way implies, therefore, you are free to force me to do whatever you think is right. Well, that's the thing. You know, we've got to get the message out that the mask is a farce. You know, that, that I mean, where if you wear a mask, you're 50% protected, 80%, 20% zero protected. I mean, there has to be studies telling me to protected, you know, by wearing a mask. Where, where are these studies before they force everybody to wear them? Yeah, that's it's a good question. And and the, the of course, there's competing evidence out there. Um, it wasn't that long ago that uh, Dr. Fauci himself was saying, you know, these masks really don't do anything. But now, and this is what makes me suspicious, it, it's, it's almost universal, at least the official narrative, you have to wear the mask. If you're not wearing the mask and social distancing, you're not doing your part. That sounds more like social engineering than good, solid science. The, the N95 mask, they were created for people doing surgery to cover up their face while there's an open wound so they're not dropping, you know, they don't want to drop any sweat or spit into the open wound. And that's what it says right on it. That's what they were designed for. Yeah. You know, I don't know why we can't get the message out there. You you know, it's people actually think this is life threatening, that everybody's that this is worse than driving down the freeway against traffic. That this is just life threatening out there. Anybody who doesn't wear a mask, they're they're driving on the freeway right into you against traffic. It's it's just a matter of life and death. It's just crazy, Brian. I don't know how to get the word out there to people. And let's remember that these these orders and these mandates don't originate with the enforcers or the store employees. They originate with the people sitting in the governor's mansion, the lieutenant governor's uh, office, and so forth. They are the ones who need to be held accountable. They are the ones who need to be told no. And there's no science to back it up. It's, it's bizarre. 
Ray, All right. I'll, thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for your call. We've got to take a quick break. We'll come back here in just a few moments. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, Brianna Taylor. The one who uh, the woman whose death sparked so many of the protests that were taking place yesterday across much of the country. And we're, I'm going to be tackling the drug war. So so be warned if you're if you're a staunch drug warrior, um, this this might uh, this might upset some feelings. By the way, I'm thinking really strongly about getting a button made for those who have a really tough time with, uh, you know, with the masks and everything. I'm strongly considering getting a little button that I can show to people. If someone comes up and confronts me, you're not wearing a mask. I can just show them not responsible for hurt feelings. I know it's kind of flippant, but I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to be drawn into an argument. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you want to join the conversation, please do 801-331-8113. Our program is brought to you in part by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Looking to get a home loan? Get pre-qualified for that matter before you go house shopping? Talk to John Staples and his wife, Heather, at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. 23 states in which they are doing business I'll bet you if you're within earshot, they could probably help you. Be worth your time. Go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. Tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this program. All right, let's talk about this. Brianna Taylor is dead. She is another casualty in the foolish war on drugs. That's according to Daniel J. Mitchell. And he quotes a guy by the name of Mark J. Perry, who tweeted this out. He says, uh, Mark Perry has an uncommon ability to focus on what's actually important when writing about economic issues. And he has that ability, apparently, too, when it comes comes to social issues, as illustrated by a tweet that said, if we didn't have a costly, insane, and immoral war on drugs, Breonna Taylor would be alive. Just saying. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Ms. Taylor, she was killed when cops raided her residence based on a dubious search warrant. That incident and the subsequent fallout has triggered social unrest He says, by the way, David French has an excellent analysis, which he has a link to if you want to know more about the various legal issues surrounding the case. But he says, I want to focus on the bigger point, which is the foolishness of the war on drugs. He says, Jacob Solem of Reason captures his feelings in this excellent article. And this is just a citation from the article. Louisville, Kentucky police officers did a lot of things wrong when they killed Breonna Taylor, an unarmed 26-year-old EMT and aspiring nurse during a fruitless no-knock drug raid last spring. But the litany of errors that led to Taylor's death would be incomplete if it did not include the biggest mistake of all, the belief that violence is an appropriate response to peaceful conduct that violates no one's rights. If politicians did not uncritically accept that premise which underlies a war on drugs that the government has been waging for more than a century. Taylor would still be alive. Drug prohibition legalizes conduct that otherwise would be instantly recognized as felonious, including assault, theft, trespassing, burglary, kidnapping, and murder. It makes police officers enemies to be feared rather than allies to be welcomed. 
And Jacob Solom says that problem goes far beyond the cases, such as Taylor's, that are highlighted by Black Lives Matter. When a middle-aged white couple is killed in a drug raid instigated by a black narcotics officer who lied to obtain the search warrant, as happened in Houston last year, or when a white 19-year-old is fatally shot by a white police officer during a marijuana sting, as happened in South Carolina several years ago. Those outcomes are just as senseless and heartbreaking as the death of a young black woman gunned down by white drug warriors. He says at any given time, nearly half a million people are incarcerated in U.S. jails or prisons for drug offenses. Drug offenders account for almost half of federal prisoners and 15 percent of state prisoners. Arresting all those people for actions that violated no one's rights unjustly deprives them of their liberty and impairs their life prospects. And it also hurts their families and communities, which is not to say that the burdens of prohibition fall exclusively on people who like illegal drugs. Everyone else pays, too, in the form of squandered taxpayer money, diverted law enforcement resources, theft driven by artificially high drug prices and eroded civil liberties. The war on drugs is also the main excuse for the system of legalized theft known as civil asset forfeiture which allows police to take cash and other property they claim is connected to drug offenses. Now, he says, uh, in this case, Daniel J. Mitchell says, I would just add one point to Solom's superb column, and that is the war on drugs is not only responsible for the horrid policy of asset forfeiture, but it's also the excuse for costly and intrusive laws on money laundering. So just a few observations as he, as he closes here. He says, Look, the war on drugs is pointless and counterproductive. The the argument isn't that drugs don't do harm. Instead, he says, I want people to understand the social harm of criminalization is much greater than the social harm of legalization. And he has a great series of tweets from Joshua Collins that help to illustrate this. And, and there's also this terrific prohibition flow, card, flow chart, rather, which I think it may be the, the best thing in a single visual lesson to show you why the war on drugs will never work and never has. The prohibition flow chart starts with public thinks X is scary. So authorities ban X to make the public feel safe. Then there is no legal way to obtain X, which means the value of X increases. A black market forms, organized crime gains a new source of income, organized crime goes, and then you kick into the spin cycle, which just keeps repeating itself in that frequency of violent crime increases. Law enforcement uses harsher tactics. Criminals become more violent. Frequency of violent crime increases and so on. Nowhere is anybody trying to make the case. Drugs are good. Nobody's saying that. What they are saying is that uh, the state using the war on drugs as an excuse to act in a predatory fashion is worse than the damage the drugs themselves would do. At least the drugs themselves would only be damaging the people who actually use them. But when the state starts to wage war on drugs, it damages everybody, whether they use drugs or not. That's the problem. All right. Shifting gears. I've heard about this. In fact, I think a caller brought this up. uh, Was it uh, yesterday or the day before? This is an article from John Miltimore. Black Lives Matter's goal to disrupt the nuclear family fits a Marxist aim that goes back a century and a half. 
And John Miltimore writing for the Foundation for Economic Education starts with an observation. Somebody pointed this out to me the other day. The organization Black Lives Matter has removed from its website a page that included language condemning America's, quote, Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The page titled What We Believe included various public policy positions unrelated to police brutality and police reform. The Washington Examiner discovered on Monday that the page had been removed. Now it says, page not found. Sorry, but the page you're trying to view does not exist. Why would they remove the What We Believe page from their website? There's a nice screenshot that shows, yeah, it's definitely not there. John Miltmore says the page included many beliefs and objectives that had nothing to do with police brutality or police reform, including a stated goal of disrupting America's Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Curious, don't you think? Now, of course, the Wayback Machine has archived the page. There's a link to it if you want to see what it looked like. And it contains a lengthy description of the organization's tenets and and objectives. Among the views expressed is a desire to, quote, disrupt the traditional family structure. Quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. End quote. Now, according to the examiner, BLM did not respond to the paper's request for comment, so it's unclear if that page was deliberately removed. But whatever the case, John Miltimore says BLM's endorsement of this language should come as little surprise. As Brad Palumbo has shown, there are effectively two Black Lives Matters, two Black Lives Matter phenomena. You have the Black Lives Matter trademarked organization, and then you have the Black Lives Matter as a as an informal movement. The latter involves people fighting in good faith for police reform who believe African Americans suffer disproportionately from police violence. The former Black Lives Matter trademarked is an organization co-founded by Patrice Coolers, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi that has roots in Marxism. We do have an ideological framework, Kohler said of her organization in 2015. We are trained Marxist. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. By the way, there's a nice video to back this up. This is not just someone saying, yeah, I think she said that. You can hear it in her own words and from her own mouth. As John Miltimore says, he says, I pointed out in a 2017 article, Karl Marx was interested in abolishing much more than simply private property. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and his associate, Frederick Engels, defend attempts by communists to abolish the traditional family. Abolition of the family, even the most radical flare-up at this infamous proposal of the communists, Marx wrote, on what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain, in its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeoisie. Now, Marx and Engel proceeded to compare the nuclear family to public prostitution, explaining why it was natural and desirable for the institution to vanish. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital, Marx and Engel wrote. They said the bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed co-relation of parents and child, becomes all the more disgusting the more by the action of modern industry. 
All the family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder. Their children transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor. That sounds like a kid who wanted to get out of doing his chores, doesn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing with you an article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. This one having to do with Black Lives Matter and their stated goal of disrupting the nuclear family, which just coincidentally happens to fit a Marxist aim going back roughly a century and a half. We shared with you before the break some of the hostility that Marx and Engels Engels rather felt toward the family. But, you know, they offered clues as to why they felt that way. Some of this may sound familiar. Engels wrote in Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State, quoting Marx. He said, the modern family contains in germ not only slavery, but also serfdom, since from the beginning it is related to agricultural services. It contains in miniature all the contradictions which later extend throughout society and its state. Now, John Miltimore says the hostility to the traditional family did not die with Marx and Engels, however. One of the first steps the Bolsheviks took in in seizing power was to begin a decades-long struggle to abolish marriage and weaken the traditional family. Harvard historian Lauren Kaminsky said the issue was so central to the revolutionary program that the Bolsheviks published decrees establishing civil marriage and divorce soon after the October Revolution in December 1917. These first steps were intended to replace Russia's family laws with a new legal framework that would encourage more egalitarian sexual and social relations. Now, a 1926 article from The Atlantic, written by a woman living in Russia at the time, describes these efforts in detail. The term illegitimate children was abolished, and a law was passed that allowed couples to divorce in a matter of a few minutes. Legislation was introduced to eliminate distinctions between legal wives and mistresses, including granting property rights to the unmarried consorts. Chaos was the result, the woman wrote. Men took to changing wives with the same zest which they displayed in the consumption of the recently restored 40% vodka. About a half century later, the Chinese Communist Party introduced a different version of state-enforced family orchestration. It's one-child policy in place from 1979 to 2015. The most extreme population planning policy in world history placed limits on the number of children Chinese families could have. Decades before the policy went into effect, party chairman Mao Zedong famously explained why it was necessary for the state to manage family procreation and the labor stock. Mao said reproduction needs to be planned. In my view, humankind is completely incapable of managing itself. It has plans for production in factories, for producing cloth, tables and chairs and steel, but there is no plan for producing humans. This is anarchism, no governing, no organization, and no rules. Now, John Miltimore says even today, the aversion to the traditional family remains strong in socialists. A 2019 article in The Nation titled, Want to Dismantle Capitalism? Abolish the Family. That gives you a glimpse into the modern socialist critique of the institution. Author Sophie Lewis says, We know that the nuclear private household is where overwhelming majority of abuse 
can happen. And then there's the question of what it's for. Training us up to be workers, training us to be inhabitants of a binary gendered and racially stratified system, training us not to be queer. Now, Miltimore says for true believers of collectivism, there's little reason or little question rather that private family matters are also state matters. Socialism requires collective control of resources and humans are the ultimate resource. This is why the traditional nuclear family, which places authority in the hands of parents rather than the community, is an affront to so many socialists. It's competing authority. Scholar Robert Nisbet has explained that the family is one of three pillars of authority outside the state, along with church and civic organizations. All three of these institutions offer humans something essential to the human experience, community. Nisbet believed all three pillars served as important checks on centralized political power, which is why Nisbet saw the decline of the family, church, and civic organizations in America as an ill omen for liberty. He wrote in The Quest for Community, a study in ethics and order of freedom, the quest for community is an impulse that stems from human nature. All yearn for participation and for a sense of belonging within a cause or body greater than the single person. If the desire for community cannot be filled in church, in family, in neighborhood, or in locality, then it will be filled instead by the central state. Now, John Miltimore says it's unclear why Black Lives Matter scrubbed the anti-nuclear family language from its website. But what's clear is that its previously stated goal to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure fits the Marxist paradigm stretching back a century and a half. Maybe the removed page reflects a change of heart. On the other hand, he says it could simply be a tactic to conceal its Marxist roots. As he and Dan Sanchez wrote in a recent Fee article, in recent decades, purveyors of socialism have shown a tendency to shun the Marxist label even while embracing its ideas. Bottom line, though, many people and organizations of good faith support the Black Lives Matter movement because they believe all people deserve equal treatment and due process before the law. But John Miltimore warns Americans should be careful not to confuse the broader Black Lives Matter movement with Black Lives Matter, trademark, an organization whose goals may be antithetical to freedom and family, even if they no longer say so. Interesting stuff. Okay, one final thought here. I know you're hearing a lot about the Supreme Court these days. What would it be like? Going from a 5-4 court, which I think we've seen some pretty major decisions come down on a 5-4 decision, to a 6-3 court, assuming that Trump is able to get a conservative justice seated. How would it fundamentally change things? A writer by the name of Morgan Marietta gives us three ways that it would change things by having that 6-3 conservative majority instead of just a 5-4 majority. He says... First of all, it would have a broader docket. The court only takes cases the justices choose to hear. Five votes on a nine-member court make a majority, but four is the required number required to take a case. So if Roberts doesn't want to accept a controversial case, it now requires all four of the conservatives, Alito, Gorish, Kavanaugh, and Thomas, to accept the case and risk the outcome. If they're uncertain how Roberts will rule, as many people are, then conservatives may not be willing to grant a hearing. Six conservatives on the court, though, that would change. 
More certain of the outcome, the court would likely take up a broader range of divisive cases, including gun regulations that have been challenged as a violation of the Second Amendment, the brewing conflicts between gay rights and religious rights that the court so far has sidestepped, and maybe even new abortion regulations that states will implement in anticipation of legal challenges and a favorable hearing at the court. Secondly, he says there will be a rights reformation. Uh, The rise of a 6-3 conservative court could also mean the end of the expansion of rights the court has overseen during the half century. Now, conservatives believe constitutional rights, such as freedom of speech and religion, bearing arms and limits on police searches, are immutable. But they question the expansive claims of rights that have emerged over time, such as privacy rights and reproductive liberty. They also include LGBTQ rights, voting rights, health care rights, any other rights not specifically protected in the text of the Constitution. In other words, things which aren't really rights at all, but government invented privileges. So you may see a little more discretion in how these rights cases are approached. And individuals' rights may be less important than the government's efforts to protect national security while fighting terrorism, conducting surveillance, or dealing with emergencies. Conservatives will argue that the public need for security trumps the private claims of rights. So there's a downside, at least if you're a fan of of real freedom. Now, the court has upheld religious rights or claims to religious rights in education and religious exceptions to anti-discrimination laws. That trend would be likely to continue. Finally, he sees a return to local democracies as perhaps the most important ramification of a 6-3 conservative court is that it will return many policies to local control. That would include one of the big ones, Roe v. Wade, which is likely but not certain under a 6-3 court. That would leave the legality of abortion up to each state. And this will make state-level elected officials the guardians of individual liberties, shifting power from courts to elections. How citizens and their elected officials respond to this new emphasis is perhaps the most important thing that will determine the influence of a conservative court. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out. See what you think. I honestly don't spend a great deal of time focusing on the Supreme Court and worrying about what is it going to mean. You know, for instance, some will say, well, Brian, well, maybe you should. What if they were to decide to uh, repeal the Second Amendment? Huh? Is that something the court could do? I thought that would require another constitutional amendment, meaning uh, three-fifths of the states, right? Would it, would it not require going through the whole uh, amendment process? Or am I just uh, mistaken in thinking that the court can't do whatever it darn well pleases? But it doesn't matter. Either way, that right to keep and bear arms precedes the court. It exists whether they give their grudging permission or not. That's what makes it a natural right. We've got to understand the difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.